This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That is Matthew 5, the words of Jesus. Guys, thanks so much for being with us on today's show. And thank you to everybody that bought the new swag in the Undaunted Life shop. The pre-order for the summer merch drop is officially closed. The hats and shirts are in production as we speak. And we'll be getting those out to you guys that ordered them just as soon as we get them in. So be on the lookout for that. Also, I am booking speaking engagements for the remainder of this year and on into 2023. Just had a conversation today about a speaking gig in at the end of 2023. So we're actually very, very excited about that. I hope to talk to you guys more about that here before too long. But if you would like me to come speak live at your event, or on your podcast, just shoot me an, e- an email to info at undaunted.life, or you can go to undaunted.life backslash speaking. That will be in the show notes. Guys, this is the first episode that I'm recording after Memorial Day. So just a quick word about Memorial Day. Obviously, I do the Murph every Memorial Day. That's a big deal for me uh, to just, you know, pay homage to Lieutenant Colonel or to Lieutenant Michael Murphy and to also uh, everyone in that uh, greater community that has lost their life uh, when they were downrange. <clears throat> and it's a very important time for us as Americans to understand that it's about way more than just a day off. You know, I put this in our Instagram post. You can go back to the Instagram post from that day because I found a picture of a young boy who is maybe four or five years old in a full dress uniform. I think it was a Marine uniform. And he's there, you know, hugging his dad's uh, tombstone. Looked to be at Arlington National Cemetery. Looks like, you know, the, the, the widow was there, you know, sitting there crying and it's just, that's what, that's what that day is about. Uh, it's about way more than burgers and beer and, you know, having fun with your friends. And it's about those things as well, but it's a very important day for us in our country. And we got to make sure that we continue to, uh, support those families as we move forward into the future. Now, guys, today, we're not going to be doing a quick hitter segment, uh, because we, we actually don't, we won't have the time today to really get into any quick hitters and, you know, the quick hitters just, it felt a bit odd to add anything to what we're going to be talking about today, because there's going to be a lot of gravity to the episode and what we're be talking about because we're obviously going to need to spend some time talking about what happened last week in Uvalde, Texas. Um, and now the thing is, is like I've said before on the show, there are sometimes when something happens and I immediately want to launch in and talk about it like immediately, like within the hour. And then there's other times where I kind of want to sit back, let the dust settle and understand what's going on before I comment on it. So I did that with this Uvalde thing. So by the time you hear this, this will be about nine days after the event actually took took place. But there's been a lot of things that have changed. And so I'm glad I kind of took this time. Um, now, one thing I do want to address here, because a lot of people are talking about this, some are using it to virtue signal, some are just using it by way of announcement. Um, We've made the decision here at Undaunted Life that whenever there is a situation like what we saw in Uvalde, Texas, when we talk about the situation, we will use the killer's name. Okay. So, uh, there are a lot of places, you know, you, you very prominently like the daily wire, you know, Megan Kelly's talked about this, some other places on the blaze where they won't use the killer of the mass murderer's name because they don't want to elevate that person's profile. And I understand where they're coming from. I just feel like, um, I feel differently about it because a lot of these people that do these things, they don't always have this over inflated view of themselves. And I don't mean the people that are saying they're not going to use the names. I mean, the actual people that are perpetrating these crimes, you know, there's a lot of these people that don't, they don't really have this desire for their name to live on. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. And I would argue that most of the people that perpetrate these crimes are just fine being referred to as, you know, the Uvalde, Texas school shooter, or, you know, the Columbine high school uh, shooter or something like that. Uh, I don't really necessarily think these people are wanting their name to live on because in a lot of these cases we do forget their names. Um, and the thing is, is we, we don't do that with like famous serial killers. 
You know what I mean? Like, you know, we, we say Unabomber and we say Ted Kaczynski, like we use both of their names and that just kind of proves my point. Like we know more people know Unabomber than they know Ted Kaczynski. It's an easier thing for people to remember, but also when a specific terrorist group, right? Like Al Qaeda or, you know, ISIS or Boko Haram or something like that, when they do a terrorist attack or of some kind and kill a bunch of people, these same news outlets don't say, you know, an extremist group. And then just leave it at that. They, they, they give the specific event, right? Or they give the specific group. So I don't know why we would, you know, do that for individual, you know, mass killers and not, you know, terrorist groups or something like that. So, you know, that's just kind of my thing. Now, the mainstream media and social media will allow for the recognition of these people regardless. Where I think most mainstream media companies and social media companies go wrong is publishing manifestos, um, you know, linking to live stream videos of the killings, which we've seen. You know, I remember seeing one uh, about the shooting in Buffalo. I remember seeing one about the shooting that was in New Zealand. And those are things that probably shouldn't be out there and shouldn't be things that you should allow to be shared on your, on your platform. So for today's podcast, guys, I want you to make sure that you stick with us to the end because there, there are a lot of things that we have to go into. So I'll get started before too long. I did just kind of need to set the scene for a lot of these things. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the details of the massacre as we best understand them to this point. I'm recording this the day before this is coming out. My personal thoughts on the matter, uh, the immediate reactions we saw from all sides on this issue. Uh, and then I'm going to do a big time myth versus reality section, which I think is going to be very, very important for you guys to understand. A lot of myths around mass murders and gun violence here. Here in the United States. I'm going to go through the most common stupid ideas on how to lower gun violence in America. And then also I'm going to do a section where we talk about how we can actually stop future school shootings. And then we're going to wrap up with what the Bible has to say about self-defense guys, a lot of ground to cover, but uh, cover, but a lot of great information. Um, and also just for any of you guys that have been listening from the very beginning back in 2018, I think it's from February, 2018, very, very early on in this show, I did an entire episode on gun violence. And this was right after the shooting in Parkland, Florida. That's episode 10 of this podcast. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. I think that episode stands up pretty well to time. I think in that episode, I, you know, I was imprecise on how I talked about the definition of assault weapons because assault weapons is not technically a category. It's not, there's not a legal definition of what that thing is. You know, I was kind of colloquially saying that it's like, it's a weapon that can go into full auto, you know, that type of a thing. But for the most part, I really stand by everything that was said in episode 10. So I'll make sure that I give that to you guys. So let's go ahead and get into the details of what happened in Uvalde last week. Uh, now guys, I'm about to go through the timeline. Okay. And you might be tempted to skip past this because you think you understand the timeline or that you know the timeline, or maybe it's going to seem a bit laborious to you, but it's very, very important because we're going to be talking a lot about specifics that came out of the timeline. And we really, really need to understand the timeline. Now, as I was preparing for this episode, the timelines that I was doing the research on were all over the place, depending upon which entity or which group you went to, the timeline was a little bit different. And, you know, I was trying to like, you know, piece together timelines from a bunch of different places. But then I found that over at Louder with Crowder, so that Steven Crowder show, his research team did a really good job of getting together and kind of putting together a, uh, yeah, a timeline that used a bunch of different sources. So sources from CBS, from the New York Times, Texas Tribune, The Guardian, Twitter, YouTube, Newsweek, and The Washington Post. And so I'm going to be using their timeline and I'll link to it here in the episode notes as well. And this is the entire timeline of the event. And this was last updated on May the 31st. So if something changes in the next few days before you listen to this, just know this was recorded and updated on May the 31st. So let's get into the timeline here. <clears throat> At approximately 11 a.m., the shooter posted a on Facebook that he was going to shoot his grandmother. And then he did so. And then he fled in his grandmother's truck. The grandmother called 911. That was the first call to 911 concerning the situation. 
At approximately 11.15 a.m., the shooter posted on Facebook his plan to shoot up a school. At 11.27 a.m., there was video that showed a door to the school had been propped open, and it was actually propped open by a teacher. One minute later, at 11.28 a.m., the shooter crashed his truck near the school. Uh, a, sh- a teacher saw the crash and went inside to call 911. That was a second 911 shooting, and, they, and she also left the door open when she did that. There were two nearby men that approached the vehicle until they saw the armed suspect. Uh, the gunman did fire at these men, but neither of these men were injured. A couple minutes later at 1130 AM, 911 was called again and the crash was reported. And the name of the teacher uh, currently is being covered, uh, you know, anonymously in reports, probably because she left the door open. At 1131, police arrived, but didn't initially see the gunman. Uh, The gunman proceeded to shoot at the school from behind cars in the parking lot. Now at 11.33, the gunman entered the school through the door that was left open by the teacher. He proceeded to fire more than 100 rounds uh, and entered into either room 111 or 112. And we know he fired that many rounds because there was uh, available audio from that occurrence. And early reports stated that the gunman was initially met and engaged by the school resource officer, but this information was later proven false. The school resource officer was not on campus at the time that the killer started his rampage. At 11.35, three officers entered the school building building through the same door. They briefly exchanged fire with the shooter. Two of these officers were grazed. Four more officers entered the school building soon thereafter. And at some point between the first shots and the second burst of shots, code black was announced in the cafeteria, but employees reported employees of the school reported that they didn't even know what code black meant. Okay, so that's a massive, massive, massive issue. A couple of minutes later, 1137 a.m., the gunman fired 16 more rounds. At 1143, the school broadcasted over Facebook that they were in lockdown. At 1151 a.m., more police arrived on site. At 11.54, parents and police gathered outside the building. Uh, Cops during this period of time, they pepper sprayed and cuffed some parents that were imploring them, screaming at them, yelling at them to go inside and try and save these kids. Uh, And there was actually a mom there. This is a pretty famous story from all this nonsense. Uh, A mom was actually put on the ground and handcuffed. Uh, She managed to talk her way out of the handcuffs by talking to another police officer that I think she knew. And then she apparently hopped a fence, went inside the school, got her kids and got the hell out of there. I mean, just a gangster mama bear moment for her. Then at 12.03 p.m., approximately 19 officers were inside the school at this time. There were three 911 calls that were made from inside the classroom by a female student. So uh, this would be the third overall 911 call that came at 12.03. Another one, the fourth, came at 12.10. And then another one, the fifth, came at 12.13. The student reported multiple people were dead. At 12.11, an officer announced to parents that students were being moved to the nearby funeral home for for reunification. Sorry. At 12.15 p.m., Border Patrol tactical unit members began to arrive. At 12.16 and 12.19, the same student dialed 911. So that is the sixth and seventh 911 calls by this point. At 12.17, the school posted on Facebook that there was an active shooter. At 12.21, the shooter began firing again, possibly at the door. At 12.30, the school announced on Facebook that reunification was would be at the high school. So they moved reunification again, shows that they didn't really have a great idea for what they would be doing and when they should be doing it. At 12.36 p.m., the female student from inside the classroom called 911 again. This is the eighth 911 call and was told to stay on the line. At 12.43 and 12.47, she told them to send police now. So what's that's the ninth and 10th 911 calls at that point. At 12.40 p.m., the school posted to Facebook to change the reunification location to the Civic Center. So that's the third different location for reunification for parents. Obviously, not every parent was on Facebook. They didn't know this information. And then at 12.50, police finally got a key 
to unlock the door because they were apparently waiting on a key to get through the door. They opened the door and shot and killed the shooter. So reportedly the gunman was killed by a team of three border patrol agents that broke protocol and went into the building to try and kill the shooter. Reportedly, you know, one of the three border patrol agents was getting a haircut when his wife texts him. I think his wife was a teacher at the school or worked at the school. Wife texts him to say that there was a shooter at the school and he borrowed a shotgun from the barber to go and get some. So that's the timeline of the events. Uh, the massacre left 19 elementary school aged children dead and two of their teachers. One of the teacher's husbands died of a heart attack within a couple of days of this. So the death toll, uh, death toll could easily be called 22 for now. But guys, uh, the reality is, is the ramifications of this for the survivors and for the people of this community will be impossible to calculate. I mean, you should just definitely expect the body count to grow. Some of these people are going to act out on themselves, either by harming themselves, uh, potentially committing suicide. We pray that that doesn't happen. Potentially, some of these people act out and be violent towards other people. There was a report of a grandfather who uh, watched his, uh, you know, not the grandfather, but, you know, his grandson watched his favorite uh, person, his best friend, be murdered right next to him. And the grandfather has said, has since. Last Tuesday, his uh, grandson has not uttered a single word, you know, just completely in shock, completely traumatized. There is going to be a major, major ripple effect from this that's going to you know, last for decades and decades. So I do want to go through the names of the deceased. I think that is very important to acknowledge these people and their existence. Now, I do apologize in advance for some of my Spanish pronunciations. I don't mean any disrespect to these uh, these victims or their families. So here are the victims. Uzia Garcia, 10 years old. Jose Flores Jr., 10 years old. Emery Joe Garza, 10 years old. Xavier Lopez, 10 years old, Nevea Bravo, 10 years old, Alethea Ramirez, 10 years old, Tess Marie Mata, 10 years old, Alexandria Lexi Rubio, 10 years old, Layla Salazar, 10 years old, McKenna Lee Elrod, 10 years old, JC Luvinos, 10 years old, Jaila Nicole Silguero, 11 years old, Eliana Ellie Garcia, 9 years old, Eliana Cruz Torres, 10 years old, Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez, 10 years old, Jacqueline Jackie Cazares, nine years old. Maddie Juliana Rodriguez, ten years old. Ten years old. Rogelio Torres, ten years old. Miranda Mathis, eleven years old. And then Eva Morellas, forty-four year old teacher. And Irma Garcia, forty-eight year old teacher. And it was Irma's husband, Joe Garcia, fifty, that died of a heart attack two days after the massacre. So there were reports that. Many of these parents from this community, many of the parents that had students that were in and around the classrooms that were being shot up, they didn't find out until two or three in the morning that day whether or not their child had been murdered because they had to wait for DNA testing because of how mutilated the bodies were after they had been shot so many times by the killer, and the killer's name is uh, Salvador Ramos. Um, and another thing, just in terms of using the name, I'm not going to use it as much as possible. I'm just going to use it when it means uh, when it's necessary. The shooter's birthday uh, was on May 16th which is, you know, he basically, or yeah, the shooter's birthday was on May 16th and it was very close to his 18th birthday is when he went out and bought the rifles and ammunition that he planned to carry out this attack with. So we can assume that this young man had been planning this attack on his grandmother and or the school children for a while before he actually perpetrated it. So presumably he was waiting for his 18th birthday to be able to buy these firearms so that he could do what he felt like he needed to do. So there are a few things of note. The gunman arrived at the school at 1128 and he began his shooting his rifle outside almost immediately. Now, this is where I, I get a lot of differences in terms of the timelines. There are some people that are reporting that it was five minutes from the moment he arrived on campus at 1128 until he went inside at 1133. There are other places that are reporting even to today, uh, the recording of this on Wednesday, that he spent 12 minutes outside 
you know, shooting. So if it was five minutes, there wasn't really enough time for the police to come from the police station to respond to the situation. If it was 12 minutes, they definitely did because I even Google mapped it, you know, where the Uvalde police station was versus the school, you know, five minutes, it would have been, you know, really tight, but 12 minutes, they could obviously have gotten there. Um, the gunman arrived at the school at 1128 AM, as far as we know, but he was not killed until 1250, almost a full 90 minutes after he arrived at Rob elementary school. Okay. So in fact, it took law enforcement over an hour to even engage the gunman after he had barricaded himself in one of the classrooms. Like they had engaged him initially with those first few officers that went in. But once he put himself in the classroom and he started systematically murdering these children, it took the officers over an hour to respond over an hour to engage the suspect, to engage the gunman. So the cops had to wait for a key to get into the room. So I guess this is a newsflash for all you would-be school shooters out there. All you have to do is pick the biggest room in the school with the most students in it, go in there, and just lock the door behind you. The, the cops will apparently be completely flummoxed and just sit there with their thumbs up their butts. Like, that's apparently all you need to do. Because these officers just, golly gee, they just didn't know how to get in through a locked door. Perhaps that could have been part of the plan to respond to one of these mass killings at some point. Now, to talk about my personal thoughts on the issue, I remember hearing about the massacre and almost not wanting, not wanting to hear. Like, I, I don't want to see this. I don't want to read about this. And, you know, that was kind of my initial reaction, which is odd for me because I, I normally want to immediately dig in. I think that part of the, the reason for that is because now I have sons. I have two kids. You know, obviously, I've talked about them a lot, James and Elijah, otherwise known as Squish. And, you know, a two-year-old and a two-month-old, and I automatically just thought about my kids and what would I have done in these situations and all those types of things. But obviously, it's a horrific situation for me being a proponent of the Second Amendment, for being a firearms owner, uh, someone who conceal carries, like all these different things. You know, it, it made me kind of look at myself and look at my ideology and be like, man, I, I really hope I have all this right. I really hope that I'm thinking about this the right way. I hope the framers of the Constitution got it right. You know, you kind of have those, those gut check moments. But this massacre came shortly after an avowed white supremacist named Peyton Gendron killed 10 people and wounded three more in Buffalo, New York. This is like a week before this. So 11 of the victims were black, which is exactly what the shooter wanted. Apparently, Gendron was not killed at the scene. He was taken into custody. He was almost immediately charged with first degree murder. You know, he, he pled guilty or sorry, he pled not guilty to that charge. So surely more charges are going to come, including federal hate crime charges. Gendron will die in a federal prison. You know, that much we can just about guarantee. So on the heels of both of these things, just about every high profile mass shooting that we have in this country, it has caused us to be completely focused on this issue uh, with a bunch of loud voices saying, you know, it's time to do something. They're going to bang on the table and they, we got to do something, right? And as we'll discuss here in a minute, they rarely give specifics of the something that they want us to do. Now, the thing that we need to talk about right now is the blame game, because surely and obviously there's a lot of blame to go around. So let's talk about some of this blame. So there's some blame on the teacher that left the school door propped open. There's some blame to go to the Uvalde school district administrators that came up with and enforced a bad school security plan. There's also blame that can go on the local law enforcement officers in Uvalde, Texas. In addition to that, blame can go on the law enforcement officials in Uvalde, Texas that failed to equip their law enforcement officers with a plan that would prevent most of, if not all of this massacre. Now, to be clear, and I just want to be, you know, go on the record as saying this, I am personally calling for every single person involved in this situation that arrived on the scene and didn't instantly try to engage their murderer to be fired or resign immediately, immediately. 
all of those people have to pay a price for what they decided they would not do in that situation. Also, some blame could go on all of us for, for not forcing our public school districts to take school safety and security seriously, like we do with other issues. Also, the family of the murderer. There's some culpability there. Did they not see these warning signs that we're going to get into here in a second? Also, the, the community around the murderer, murderer that should have noticed some of these things. Okay? And this is kind of a side note. This is a message to all the people out there, dads especially. Teach your kids to seek out and be nice to the wallflowers or to the kids that seem a little bit disturbed at school. For, for dads, if you see a young man, man in the community that is not being fathered, step in and father that child to a degree. You know, teach your family members and your kids to notice when some of these warning signs about some of these kids are coming and, and let them know that they can easily report that to you. But the last thing, and this is the, the ultimate thing in terms of the blame game, blame ultimately rests on one person, and that's the murderer himself, Salvador Ramos. Okay? He is singularly responsible for the decisions that he made to load up a magazine, put it into a rifle, and point it at children and pull the trigger. And to do that to his grandmother as well. And from what we know about this guy, th this is a guy that was a, a deeply disturbed young man. We have reports that he cross-dressed, that he got into fights at school, that he cut up his face with a knife, that he would you know drive around in a car and shoot random people out the window with a BB gun. He took pictures with you know uh, cats in these plastic bags that he had killed. Apparently, he liked killing cats which we see that with a lot of mass killers. They start out with animals and move their way up to human beings. He made posts online about how he wanted to kill and rape people. You know, his, his you know, ex-girlfriend said that, man, this guy's weird. He's, he's potentially dangerous. And apparently this guy, because normally the narrative, oh, the person is mercilessly bullied and this is them fighting back. Apparently he was the bully. When he talked to people that went to school with him, they said, no, this, this kid was a big time bully. He's the one that bullied a lot of people. Now, before we get into the other sections of the podcast here, I do think there are some things that are fair questions to ask right now, because there are some things, guys, that absolutely stink. And I mean stink to high heaven about this massacre in Uvalde. Okay, now this is going to be red meat for all of you conspiracy theorists out there, but I don't care because there are some questions that we need some answers to and we should demand these answers. The first one is, who is the teacher that propped the door open of the school, allowing unimpeded access to the school for the shooter? Who is this teacher? Do we know anything about this teacher? Because right now she's under complete anonymity. We need to know that. Here's another thing. Do we know why she propped the door open to begin with? Do we know why? Because people are assuming she was just running out to her car to go get something. Do we know that? Okay, and this goes into the next question that we need an answer to is, do we know why she propped the door open literally one minute, one minute prior to the shooter crashing into the ditch right by the school? Do we know the answer to that? This is a good time to mention that there are storms moving, moving through the state of Oklahoma right now. So if you hear thunder, that is what that is. But she propped the door open right before this guy showed up. Is that just a coincidence? I'm not saying it's not. It could be a coincidence, but we need to know the answer to that. Another question we need to have the answer to is, why was the school resource officer not on campus when the shooter arrived? How convenient. Where was he? What was he doing? Why don't we know the answer to that? Another question. Why did the Uvalde School District police chief in charge tell officers to treat this situation as a, quote, barricaded subject situation, unquote, and order them not to breach the room until they could organize a response as opposed to following the school district's protocol to immediately engage 
any school shooter. Why was that decision made? Because again, everyone is telling us that the school district's plan is that if there is a school shooter, that you engage that shooter immediately, that even if you're a police officer that responds and you see a kid that is wounded from a school shooting or a teacher or something like that, your first priority is not to help that kid. Your first priority is to stop the shooter. But the, the school district's police chief said, nope, barricaded subject situation, essentially a hostage situation, which changes everything, which allowed for this killer to systematically murder these kids. We need to know the answer to that. Also, why did the cops at the scene have to wait for a damn key? Really? You don't have a key to get into the door at school? And, and here's the thing, guys, is talk to anyone, and I mean anybody, anyone in your life that has tactical experience, whether from the military or police or something like that, anybody with tactical experience, if you hear them talk about this situation, they say that any room that has a door, whether it has a lock or not, and has windows is going to be an easy room for, for you to breach and to clear. Now, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but they're saying there's nothing about that classroom that should have made it to where these officers spent over an hour sitting outside the door, watching or, you know, watching themselves or watching each other, basically listening to kids be murdered. There's no reason for that. We need an explanation. Another question is, and this is very important, how did an 18-year-old that doesn't come from a family of means have enough money to buy two AR-15s? hundreds of rounds of ammunition, a pistol, and body armor. We have no reports that he stole any of these items, and we know for sure he bought two Daniel Defense rifles for around $5,000, right, for these two rifles. Where did he get this money? Because reportedly, the killer used to work at Wendy's, but he had been unemployed for over a year. So is it possible that he made enough money while working at Wendy's to save up all this money, and when he got the money he wanted, he just quit and waited for his 18th birthday? Certainly that's possible. Right. And even some of his former co-workers from Wendy said that he even told them that he was just saving up to buy guns. But he just thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and no one knew he had this money. And for uh, approximately a week before he did this, no one realized that he bought any of these things. No one in his family. We need to know the answer to that. And also the last thing I'll say on here before we move off the conspiracy stuff, I guess, is the timing of this just stinks, stinks to high heaven. Midterms are coming up. Democrats need something to run on because everything else is on fire, right? We need a distraction away from what's been happening and, you know, what's about to happen at the southern border, right? Record high gas prices, highest inflation in over 40 years. We're on the eve of a major recession, the lowest approval ratings for Congress and specifically for co-president Joe Biden. So this is a supposedly winning issue for Democrats. So the timing just stinks. So allow me to get off of that and move on to the next thing. So the reactions to the massacre in Uvalde. So a lot of predictability in the reactions, okay? Every Democrat and anti-gun leftist began calling for more gun control legislation, but few of them got very much more specific than that. There, I mean, that should be a surprise to nobody. Also predictable is a bunch of people said, we've got to do something, right? Without really specifying what they mean by something or if they suggested something, it was stupid. You know, you had Steve Kerr going up there, banging on the, the podium at the, the press conference after or before one of the Warriors games and all that. And he's like, you know, there's something sitting at Congress right now that needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be taken care of. It needs to be voted on. But, you know, we have 50 senators in Washington that don't want that. And, you know, all the virtue signaling that came with that. Obviously, that's all very, very predictable. Co-President Joe Biden. Uh, had a press conference at the White House uh, or a speech that he, uh, he gave an address at the White House. It was a horrific display, unbelievably divisive. He spent about 14 seconds 
saying, you know, how, how sad he was and how much we should mourn for these people. And then the rest of it was just basically a diatribe on how we have to get rid of people's abilities, uh, ability to have guns. That could have been a great opportunity for Joe Biden. A lot of people have pointed this out just basically to bring the country together for a second. Hey, let's worry about legislation tomorrow. But he just, he couldn't help himself. Then we had Biden's trip to Uvalde, right? Now, for me, I know some people have a problem with politicians showing up at, you know, disaster areas or the sites of mass murders or something like that. I'm kind of neutral on it. You know, I would probably want somebody to come here, you know, and at least show that they were here, that they cared, but it doesn't actually mean that they care. It's just mainly a media thing. And, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of security that has to happen. So it puts a lot of, especially in a town like Uvalde, that's so small, it puts a lot of pressure on them because now you got the president here and there's secret service and there's a lot of things going on. And so when this town's really needing to up, you know, uptick the amount of healing that needs to start as quickly as possible. Here we are worrying about, you know, how much ice cream that we have to make sure Joe Biden has for his trip here and how many diapers he has left in his bag. But also, um, he spoke to the media while he was in Uvalde and just proved that, I mean, no shock of all of, of to anyone that he doesn't know anything about anything, but this guy knows nothing about firearms and nothing about firearm safety. Talking about how no one needs a nine millimeter. You know, if you get shot with a 22, you know, it'll basically prick you. But if you get shot with a nine millimeter, it'll blow your lung out of your body. This guy doesn't understand anything about guns and, and, you know, add that to the list of things that he has no knowledge of whatsoever. But one of the most tone deaf, egregious and, and moronic moments came courtesy of one of my least favorite human beings alive. And that's former president Barack Obama. He took to Twitter. And I mean, I, even as I look at this tweet before I read it, it is astonishing to me that a human being could think this and then actually type it and then send it out. Right. And I'm assuming it was him, but even if not, it was someone on his team, right? This was his tweet from 3:08 PM, May the 25th, 2022. As we greet the children of Uvalde today, we should take time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us to this day, especially those who loved him. So Barack Obama decided to say, hey, I know there's a bunch of dead nine, 10 and 11 year olds and a couple of teachers over here, but this colossal piece of crap who gave nothing to society whatsoever that died with a horrific amount of drugs in his system that if he had been just found dead on the street corner, they would have said he died from fentanyl overdose. We need to worry about that guy. Don't, don't take your eye off the ball here, everybody. I know there's, you know, 21 dead bodies over here that aren't even cold yet, but we still need to talk about George Floyd. Why? Because racism or something. What a despicable piece of crap he is. What an unbelievable, horrible American Barack Obama is. Screw him for that. Screw him. What? I don't think I've ever cussed on this, this podcast and boy, am I close. So we just need to move on to someone else that's going to make me lose my mind. And that's Beta O'Rourke. So Beta O'Rourke is a democratic politician. Who's one of the least impressive people in public life. He lost a, a presidential bid to, to run for president and win the, the nomination for the democratic party. He lost uh, a senatorial race in the state of Texas. So he's trying to get the trifecta by losing the governor's race in Texas. So he is going to be the democratic representative on the ballot this November running for the governor of the state of Texas. But he had one of the most unbelievably inappropriate displays that I've ever seen. So basically, I, one day after this event happened, uh, Greg Abbott, who is the uh, governor of the state of Texas, and you know the some police officials and the mayor of the town of Uvalde, they did a press conference to give you the information they knew up to that point. Okay, so they're basically just describing what had happened, and Beto O'Rourke decides he was going to walk up to the stage. 
you know, in from the crowd, point his finger at Greg Abbott and basically say, this is your fault and you're not doing anything and blah, blah, blah. And to his credit, the, the mayor of Uvalde stood up and said, hey, you stupid son of a bitch, you get out of here. Get out of here. This is inappropriate. You are out of line. You are out of line. And that is the, the most perfect thing he could have done except for jumping off of the stage, you know, Habib Nurmagomedov style and just like super kicking this dude directly in the face. But, you know, he eventually walked himself out there and people automatically on the left side of the aisle, they thought this was great. Oh, this was such heroism by this guy. But there were a lot of people that were saying that this was not a stunt. No, this wasn't a stunt. You know, Beto O'Rourke, he just cares so much. He was just overcome with rage and had to just do something. You know, that's the theme is uh, do something. But there's one piece of evidence that shows that Beto O'Rourke clearly staged this little stunt. Okay. There were two seat holders that were sitting in the room before the press conference started. And right when the press conference began, they got up and gave their seats to Beto. Okay. So Beto knew that he would have been confronted before the event had he been in there from the beginning. So he made sure that his presence in the room was not going to be detected until after the press conference had already kicked off. So just an unbelievable self-serving display from this ridiculous narcissist. And I hope every voter in the state of Texas took note of this because I hope his candidacy for that office in the state of Texas it goes by the wayside. And Greg Abbott is not a perfect person or politician by any stretch of the imagination, but just a ridiculous display from Beto O'Rourke. And then, and this will kind of wrap up our, you know, some reactions and some of the reactions, the dictator of Canada, otherwise known as Justin Trudeau, he decided to use the tragedy to stand on the dead bodies of these children to push through one of the most appalling gun policies that we currently have in the world. Okay. He said in a, this in a speech over the weekend, just a few days after this massacre took place, quote, we're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns, unquote. Okay. So this guy uses an attack in another country using a rifle to take away the ability of Canadians to own handguns. I guess there's nothing quite like disarming your future subjects. Okay. This is right out of the communist playbook. This shouldn't be shocking to anyone. And I've got a lot of listeners in Canada and we love you guys. And I love when you reach out to us and shoot us emails. And I just got to ask you, what in the hell are you still doing there? Did, did COVID not prove anything to you guys about what the country is doing? Is this, you know, thing that is being signaled by Justin Trudeau, not, not making the call for you? Like at this point, I just don't understand why you would stay there. And I understand like, I'm not a Canadian and this is where you're from and all that. No, we got to stay and fight. Can you stay and fight? Is there anything that you can do at this point? Because the sense I get is that the majority of people like this stuff because they put Justin Trudeau in office twice. So I just don't understand what's going on with the voters up there, but this is not a podcast about Canada. We've got other stuff that we need to talk through. So I do have some random thoughts uh, before we get into the rest of the content. Again, we're going to get into a bunch of myths uh, that need to be debunked. We're going to get into ways that we can actually stop these school shootings. But the first thing I want to talk through is it's very rich to me to see atheists saying that our thoughts and prayers aren't sufficient. You saw that immediately. A lot of people saying thoughts and prayers, giving you my thoughts and prayers. But these atheists are like, oh, you know, I, we need something more than your thoughts and prayers. Well, obviously they, they think that because they think that we're just slime. They think that we're stardust and we're highly evolved, you know, monkeys that used to be highly evolved fish, right? That they, these people have no concept of good and evil really because they reject the person that gave us the moral code that allows us to discern the difference of good versus evil, right? So there are situations where prayers are all I can do. 
right? Initially, all I could do was pray. Now I can help to raise money. Now I can do what I can to help support the people down there in Uvalde. But of course, these people are saying that. Another random thought is that people automatically began focusing on the gun the young man used to perpetrate the evil that he did and not the evil inside the young man. Right. You even saw, I saw an interview with Dan Crenshaw on CNN and the person said, you know, what, what are we going to do when we have these, you know, these guns attacking and, and all these different things. And, and Dan Crenshaw, you know, unfortunately did not pound her on that. A gun did not perpetrate this crime. A person did kind of like, you know, in Waukesha, whenever a guy, a black supremacist drove through and killed a bunch of people at a parade in Wisconsin, right? Like the, this is, this is a horrible situation that was not perpetrated by a Ford SUV. It was perpetrated by a person. Another random thought I wanted to kind of get out there is the same people that claim to care about the kids killed by firearms, wielded by evil people, are completely okay with kids that are killed by surgical tools, wielded by evil people. I mean, how quickly can you shift from Roe v. Wade has to stay in because we need to make sure women can kill their babies for any reason whatsoever at any point of the pregnancy and have taxpayer, taxpayers pay for it to, oh my gosh, I can't believe we live in a country where we kill children. It's like, do you idiots not see the disconnect? Do, do you not see how your brain is not recognizing what you're saying? It's so incredible that the people were able to just make that shift and no one's calling them on it, right? It's just crazy that we're not calling them on it. Also, to the do something people out there, to the Steve Kerr's of the world, those people are very, very big on emotion, but very, very small in suggestions. Mostly because these people don't understand much about this issue. Even people, you know, in the MMA community, like Michael Bisbing, he always likes to talk about school shootings and all that. He's from England and, oh, we don't have this problem in England and all that. Yeah, they have a problem with people doing mass stabbings over there as if, you know, violence only occurs in the United States of America. We'll get way more into that here in a second. But the do something people, it's like, okay, great. Let's do something. Like what? Like what? And if they have anything to say at all, they typically say something that is really, really stupid. Again, way more on that here in a second. Also, most of these do something people that make suggestions they stop short of what they actually want, what they really want. And that is full gun confiscation. That's what they actually want. But obviously, Democratic politicians are very, very gun shy, no, for, forgive the pun, for saying that out loud, because they know that is a wildly unpopular opinion with the United States electorate. Also, these anti-gun people don't say a word about mass shootings that take place in blue cities literally every week. Why? Because they don't fit a narrative. Because if you didn't know this, a mass shooting is where there are four or more victims. But did you know that the definition of a mass shooting used to be if there were three or more victims? Now, why, even for statistical purposes, would we change it from three or four? Well, because a lot of times when there's gang violence, which is predominantly a problem in communities of color, there are a lot of, of shootings, random shootings, drive-bys and whatnot, where there are three or more victims. And so what people notice in the data is that it was being skewed in showing that people of color were predominantly the people that were perpetrating these mass crimes these mass shootings, these mass murders. So they changed it to four to move the data around a little bit, right? But all the anti-gun people aren't talking about that. They're not picketing in Chicago demanding that, you know, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, you know, do something about the fact that dozens of people are killed in her city every week, right? Because that would be way too inconvenient. That'd be way too difficult, right? And it's not dozens. It's, it's lower than that, but I was being slightly hyperbolic to make my point. Also, how is it possible that not a single one of these anti-gun leftists that we've seen, you know, making the rounds for the last week and a half or any Democrat that is advocating for, you know, any of these things. Why are none of these people advocating for security in all schools? They're only talking about the firearms. That's it. None of them are saying that we need to secure our schools. Why are they only talking about the guns? This is an incredibly, incredibly important point. 
why only the guns? Why only focus on that part of the solution? Because I know a lot of people on the right, a lot of people on the pro-gun right, that are willing to talk about everything as it pertains to this issue, including the firearms. But no one on that side of the aisle is willing to talk about anything other than the firearms. So these same people are all too willing to ignore all potential consequences of having our kids do Zoom school for two years or to wear a mask all day at school and not be able to see the faces of the people they're interacting with, but they have no regard or interest in paying for the protection of these students while they're at school? Really? Why the disconnect? And the last kind of random thought here I want to make sure I got out there is really, in my estimation, there are only two main reasons why leftists are blaming guns. Only two. The first, this may seem a little conspiracy theory-y, but prove me wrong, they want to disarm the populace to move us ever closer to socialism and communism. That's what these people want. Why else would you disarm the populace? So that's reason number one. Reason number two, they have no room for evil in their worldview. None whatsoever. Because they have no room for God in their worldview. Because if, if evil doesn't exist, then we have to blame inanimate objects at that point. It's certainly not because these people care more than everybody else. Not even close. Now, we need to move into a really, really important section here because there are so many myths that are being propagated out there online, on news shows, you know, at your local coffee shop right now. So we need to do myth versus reality, okay? There's a bunch of inconvenient and uncomfortable facts about mass shootings, firearms, and gun violence in America. So we need to set the record straight on a lot of these, okay? So myth number one, the writers of the Second Amendment would have never predicted that modern Americans would be able to so easily own, quote unquote, weapons of war. The reality is, is yeah, they could. Because at the time the framers were writing all of this, there were things like the Puckle gun, the Pepper Box revolver, the Ghirondani air rifle, the Belt and Flintlock rifle, uh, and yes, cannons, right? These were all in existence when the framers did this and they were covered by the Second Amendment, okay? And the framers were very, very smart, forward-thinking guys. They obviously knew that technology and innovations would happen in the firearm industry and that they would continue to improve. So when you hear people say that they would have never envisioned people being able to own weapons of war, that is just not true. And also, there's a major difference between the AR-style rifle that you can go and buy at Cabela's versus what you know Navy SEALs are carrying around over in the Middle East or something like that. Okay, so that's the first myth. Myth number two, common sense gun reform is what's needed. Common sense gun reform. We, we just, we're just asking for common sense gun reform, you guys. But here's the reality. There is no such thing as common sense gun reform. There's no such thing. These people talking about it can't even define what they mean most of the time. Again, it's, it's the do something crowd, right? Because if it were common sense, we would all know what you were talking about, but none of us know what you're talking about and you don't ever fill in the blanks. Myth number three is that more gun laws lead to less gun crime. Okay. The reality is, is that the cities in the United States with the most gun crime are the cities with the most gun regulations, and they all happen to be blue cities, okay? So cities like Chicago, Baltimore, New Orleans, Detroit, New York City, St. Louis, all these types of places, okay? And then you also have to ask this question, is what gun laws would have prevented the massacre in Uvalde? Background checks? Okay, well, in the state of Texas, you're required to have an FBI background check before you get your firearm which the murderer passed. You know, none gu no gun show loopholes. This guy bought his rifles and ammo from an FFL. That's Federal Firearms Licensed Dealer, right? And there's no such thing as a gun hole loophole because FFLs are the only people that are able to legally sell these things at gun shows as well. 
you know, carry laws, you know, would that have prevented this? Well, this guy was illegally carrying a pistol. We know that much, right? And you can't do that as an 18 year old in Texas. So again, what law could have been on the books that would have prevented this? And it shouldn't have to be mentioned, but I will, and I'll continue to mention it, is criminals don't follow laws. Law-abiding citizens do, by definition, for both of them. So you could put every law on the planet on the books, and a criminal's going to ignore that because they're a criminal, okay? Then we have myth number four. If we get rid of all the assault rifles, we'll get rid of all this violence, okay? Here's the reality. Assault rifles, again, as I said earlier, is technically not a category of rifle, and rifles aren't even in the top five list of weapons used to murder people in the United States every year. Okay, so maybe you've seen this someplace, and this is according to Statista, and if I you know, have some of these quotes through here or some of these statistics, I'll make sure I try to put all that in the show notes. I'll try to make sure I have that all there for you so you guys can check my work. But in 2020, the number of murder victims in the U.S. by weapons used, okay, number one was handguns, 8,029. Number two was firearms, type not stated, so we're not sure what firearm, but that's 4,863. Number three, knives or cutting instruments, that's 1,739. Number four was other weapons, 983. This could be cars. This could be rocks. Who the heck knows? Number five was personal weapons. So hands, fists, feet, right? 662 people. Number six is rifles at 455. And right after rifles is blunt objects, 393. So rifles are in between hands and fists and feet and blunt objects, okay? So this idea that getting rid of assault rifles is going to end this violence and murder in America is a falsehood, okay? Myth number five, people don't need firearms for self-defense. That's why we have police. Now, here's the reality. These people only like the police with firearms when those police are protecting them, especially leftist politicians. They love it when cops protect them. They absolutely love it. They're willing to pay for it even, but otherwise they hate cops, right? They want their departments to disappear or even be more severely de- defunded. They want them uh, to be called irredeemable racists, and they think that they're Im- irredeemable racists that just go around the country looking for black people to murder, right? It's also interesting that the good guys with guns that stopped this particular massacre, they were Border Patrol agents, which is a group of people that these politicians want disbanded. They don't want Border Patrol, right? Until they can use them as heroes you know, in this situation to basically make people that are pro-gun seem like they're crazy, right? Now let's talk about myth number six. People don't need firearms for self-defense just in general. Here's the reality. And this is one of the biggest points that almost nobody is making, okay? You have to pass this on. You have to pass on this information. There are significantly more defensive uses of firearms in the United States every year than there are homicides using firearms. I will repeat it because this is maybe the hinge point of everything we're going to be talking about. There are significantly more defensive uses of firearms in the United States of America every single year than there are homicides using firearms. Okay. So according to a 2021 national firearms survey in 2021, there were an estimated 1.67 million uses of firearms in defense situations. Okay. 1.6 million, 1.67 million. But according to the CDC data from 2020, which is the last year that we have it, there were only 19,384 uses of firearms and homicides. So 1.67 million defensive uses versus under 20,000 offensive uses for homicides. Okay. 
And the 1.67 million number is surely undercut, undersold. Because how many times did somebody just brandish a weapon to, to stop a potential assault or murder or something like that and didn't call the cops? Just went on about their day. So surely it's higher than that. Okay. And that fact alone, guys, that huge fact, and it's that way every single year, right? That fact alone should kill any of the, even if these new gun laws can save one life argument, because all these new gun regulations are going to do are take firearms out of the hands of the people that are in that 1.67 million defensive uses group, not the criminals, obviously. Let's talk about myth number seven. We need more gun-free zones. Okay. The reality is, is that around 95% of mass shootings in the United States occur in gun-free zones. Why? Because they're soft targets. Why? Because criminals, by definition, don't follow laws. And so when they see a sticker on the window that says, no guns, please. No, have you ever known a mass shooter to be like, gosh, darn it. I really wanted to kill all these people in here today. But you know what? That sticker, that sticker really got me. It's a gun-free zone. What can I do? I guess I'll have to go find some other place where I can murder people. You idiots. Myth number eight. This is the gun lobby's fault. Here's the reality. There is technically no such thing as a gun lobby in the United States. Really. There are just individual, like-minded citizens that are passionate about firearms. Now, there are organizations, and I talked about this in the last podcast, about, you know, lobbying groups. And so the NRA is the, the most famous one for guns. But the NRA spends a fraction on lobbying, uh, you know, lobbying to politicians and lobbying in Washington, D.C., than even just the abortion industry in the United States, which kills way more people, almost a million people a year. Again, less than 20,000 people are murdered using firearms in the United States. And for a country of 350 million people, that's actually not very high, right? All those are tragedies, but it's not that high, right? But this idea that this is the gun lobby doing this, like how many people actually believe that? And here's another thing. The number of NRA members that have ever perpetrated a mass shooting in the United States is zero. Zero. But there have been plenty of NRA members and former members that have stopped mass shootings. So are we really going to demonize a group of people that is not the ones doing the murders? Really? Now let's talk about myth number nine. It shouldn't be so easy for people to buy guns. Anyone can just buy a gun online or at a gun show. This is a, a very, very popular on Twitter, a popular one on Twitter and all these Democratic politicians. You shouldn't just be able to buy a gun online or, uh, you know, go to a gun show. People are pretending like they can just go to their Amazon app on their phone, order an AR-15 and a thousand rounds, and it'll just be shipped to their door by the next day. It's not reality because the reality is, is you cannot legally purchase a firearm in this country without doing so through an FFL. Again, a federal firearms licensed dealer, right? You can't do it. But people are just propagating this myth. They're just putting it out there. Myth number 10, we can predict who will become a mass murderer. And unfortunately, the reality is, is we're actually really, really bad at that. Okay. And this is why we're so bad at it. Because almost all school shooters have these things in common. Almost all of them. They're loners and outcasts. They have a bad home life. They have an absent or crappy father. They have no belief in God. They act out violently. They publicly, whether, you know, online or in person, talk about violence and they're on SSRIs. That's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, otherwise known as antidepressants. And, you know, we can't get the, you know, medical, uh, you know, medical background of all these kids, but that is something that's very, very common with a lot of these kids is they were known to be on antidepressants. So while all school shooters pretty much have those things in common, not all people 
that are loners and outcasts with bad home lives, with absent or crappy, or crappy fathers that publicly declare they want to do violence and they have no belief in God and are on SSRIs, seek to murder large swaths of their peers. Some people just, that's the hand they were dealt. Some people, these are just the ways that they act out. So it's hard for us to know who is going to change, you know, from doing those things, from kind of being in that group to going to that next tier up, which is mass murderer. You know what I mean? Now, there are some very interesting tech platforms that are doing some pretty cool work uh, in this area. Uh, Julie Jargon over at the Wall Street Journal, she's a tech reporter over there. She did a report over the weekend that there are these new tech platforms that are, are trying to screen teens for signs that they'll become violent. They talked about this on uh, the Daily Wire um, on their, their daily show uh, there on their podcast. And there's companies called Lightspeed Systems, Gaggle, Bark, some other systems, but all all of these systems monitor student communication on all devices or any devices that are hooked up to the school's internet network. Okay. So, and I'm not too worried about privacy and the privacy implications of this because they're kids and they're using the school's network, but basically AI algorithms would look for patterns, right? So um, if someone's searching about suicide methods or searching about school shootings or searching about weapons, all that info will be gathered and given to the school administrators to investigate further or to you know deal with it further. But there is a big time pattern here with school shooters. Virtually all school shooters verbalize their intentions to make an attack before they do so. Okay. So Jargon in her Wall Street Journal piece said that the U.S. Secret Service study looked at 67 different violent plots against schools and found that 94% of the school attackers expressed their intentions online before they did the deed. Okay. And the other 6% documented their plans offline, like in a journal or something like that. So uh, essentially none of these school shooters are keeping it to themselves. They are announcing it somewhere. Now, again, this is important for kids to look for warning signs in their peers, to tell school officials, to tell their parents, and we should train them and encourage them to do so. And the last myth I want to get into before we get into the rest of the content is that the myth number 11 is evil doesn't exist. There's no such thing as evil. There's just people that do things, right? And the reality is look around you. You have these atheists, you know, telling us, oh, it was evil. You know, what happened there? It's like, what do you mean by evil? You're just a chimp. I'm just a chimp. Like, what does it matter if one chimp kills another chimp? There's so many chimps out there. These chimps can be easily replaced, right? People talking as if evil doesn't exist. It's like, what real are you watching? Because it's not the one that's actually happening. But now we need to transition into topic, talking about the most common stupid ideas about how to lower gun violence in America, because boy, have there been a lot of them, but this is really, really important. We really need to dig down here. First is universal background checks. Okay. So the first thing on that is that criminals won't go along with that because they're criminals and this will only negatively affect law-abiding firearms owners. Okay. Now, universal background checks would require a background check on all firearms transactions in the United States. Okay. All of them. So this would mean that every time a firearm transferred hands an FFL would have to do that transaction. Okay. So for example, if my dad, you know, wanted to give me a family heirloom gun, okay. We'd have to do that transfer via an FFL on the FFL's timeline and on our dime. And I'm sure it would not be a cheap or quick process. Okay. This would also require a national gun registry, which is unlawful. And also this would clearly have no impact or effect on criminals because they would bypass this process anyway. Right? Because the majority of mass shooters buy their firearms legally because they have no prior criminal record and, or they're, they're criminals that buy or acquire their firearms illegally to begin with. Right? So a universal background check wouldn't apply to either group, right? 
The idea that universal background checks would stop these mass killings is an absolute farce. And universal background checks would only inconvenience the transfer or sale of firearms from one law-abiding party to another law-abiding party. That's essentially all it would do. So uh, there are these people that treat universal background checks like it's, you know, a magic bullet. Again, forgive the pun, but this isn't a magic bullet for the gun problem, right? Universal background checks are, are the same thing, I guess, as like minority report is like they don't detect future crime. How could a background check that looks behind somebody before that date be able to predict something that happens after that date? There's no background check whatsoever that could do that. Another stupid idea is raising the minimum age to buy a firearm from 18 to 21. Okay, so first of all, criminals won't go along with that because they're criminals and this will only negatively affect law-abiding firearms owners. Also, Ben Shapiro pointed this out on a show and I thought it was great. If you want to raise the age to purchase a gun from 18 to 21, but fine. But then you also need to raise the age of the draft to 21 and raise the voting age to 21. You can't expect people to be half adults. Hey, uh, we might draft you to go die for your country and all that. Um, but yeah, you definitely can't vote for the politicians making that decision. Also, you can't, uh, opt out of not being sent overseas to kill for us. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, the people that are making the argument that, that are saying, uh, you know, a, a lot of brain development and maturity happens between the age of 18 and 21, which is absolutely true. But if you take that argument to its logical conclusion, then we should raise raise the voting age, the drinking age, the draft age, and driving ages to 25 when the overwhelming majority of the population experiences full brain development. If you honestly are making the argument that it needs to be 21 because we need these kids to mature a little bit more, great, but you got to do it with everything. You have to do what most politicians are incapable of doing, and that's being intellectually consistent. And also, some of these same people that want to say that we need to take it from the age of 18 to the age of 21, these people say that a human being that's like a quarter of the age of an 18-year-old, like a six-year-old, they're saying that that person can decide what their gender is, right? You know, a four, five, six-year-old, right? That this person can decide, oh, I'm not a boy, I'm actually a girl, and I'd like to go through gender transition. Really? Help me make that make sense. Explain it to me in a way that makes sense. Because it doesn't. The next one you're hearing a lot about these, and it's red flag laws. Okay, so for me personally, I think I've talked about this before. I'm fundamentally against red flag laws. I think uh, back in the past, I was open to the argument until I learned more about what they actually were. Because they will be taken advantage of in blue states or districts and by liberal justices and judges. They will be. And, and similar to the people that are still incarcerated for the riot on January the 6th of 2020 uh, or of uh, yeah, 2021, rather, what will be the recourse for these people being able to get their firearms back? Nobody can answer that, right? And there was a section from the Daily Wire, uh, Daily Ar- Wire article that I'll include in the show notes that I thought was incredibly helpful in terms of understanding red flag laws. And here it is. But red flag laws remove all these due process protections based only on a written complaint which could come from a relative, friend, neighbor, or police officer, a judge decides whether to take away a person's guns. There is no ability to challenge claims or to offer testimony from a mental health care expert. Gun control advocates argue that the person should not even know that the judge may be deciding to take his or her guns. When a hearing finally takes place upon uh, up to a month later, if the person in question cannot afford an attorney, they will not be provided with one. 
When faced with the cost for the hearing, which may be up to $10,000, few people find that fighting red flag laws to keep their guns makes sense. Few defendants obtain legal representation, but the court still overturns a third of the initial orders. The actual error rate is undoubtedly much higher because many of those wrongly prosecuted don't have a lawyer. So, this is not a good idea. You should not support because most of the people that are pro second amendment, if they can get behind any of these dumb ideas, it's the red flag laws, but guys don't take the bait. It's a bad, bad idea. Another stupid idea is banning high capacity magazines. So again, number one, criminals won't go along with that because they're criminals. This will only negatively affect law abiding firearms owners. And are we pretending like changing magazines is one of the most difficult things that you can do on the planet? Like it's merely going to be a pause in a massacre. Now, you can get really fast with mag changes. I know there are opportunities for folks, you know, whenever there's a magazine being changed, that that can be when somebody can intercede. But this idea that banning the high capacity magazines from people like me being able to own them is silly because there's so many of them out there. And again, criminals don't play by that game. But then we get to the one that most people will talk about if they're being intellectually honest, and that's full firearm confiscation. So first of all, maybe you've heard me say this before, criminals go won't go along with that because they're criminals. And this will only negatively affect law-abiding firearms owners but this full firearm confiscation in the United States, this is a fantasy, okay? This could never happen. This would 100% lead to civil war and, and millions, if not tens of millions of Americas, Americans would be killed. Just think about if the United States government decided right now to send out the National Guard or send out the, the military, send out all these police forces to go around and gather up people's firearms. The bloodshed would be unbelievable. Okay. But everyone's point, pointing to Australia as the example for this. Now I went into this in the last podcast, but in case you hadn't heard that or are not going to go back and listen to episode 10, I need to go through this again because Australia had a mass shooting in 1996. So in 1996, Australia banned gun ownership and gun sales. Okay. They did a buyback, right? You know, big air quotes there, which is a confiscation program. And the left always uses this as their main argument and example, but we need to compare a few things here. So let's compare the, the United States today with Australia from 1996. Okay. So let's talk about population. Australia in 1996 had around 18 million people. The United States today has around 335 million people. The number of guns in country in Australia in 1996, around 3 million. The United States today, estimates are from 300 million to 475 million firearms. Okay, now let's talk about trends. Australia, since 1996, gun violence has gone down at a lower rate in Australia than it has in the United States. How is that possible? if an outright ban and confiscation happened in that country? Well, because during the confiscation, only about one-third of the guns in Australia were turned in. About one-third. So about one million of the three million guns that were in country. Since 1996, the country has gained back approximately a million guns. So they're right back where they started. Now, in the United States, gun ownership has exploded during the same amount of time. Okay? And gun violence has gone down per capita in the United States. It has gone down. Okay. In 1993, there was about one gun per citizen in the United States. Today, it's about one and a half guns per citizen of the United States. So are you really claiming people that are saying full gun confiscation in the United States? Are you really claiming that the federal government in the United States can do a better job than Australia did with the U S having 18 times the number of people and 100 times the number of guns? over a hundred times the number of guns. Are you really suggesting that we're going to be able to pull that off? The United States federal government that can barely fix a pothole can do that. 
This overall suggestion of repealing the Second Amendment and confiscating guns is baseless, and it's as baseless as it is ridiculous. And I pointed that out back in 2018 as well. But we've spent about an hour now, and so I'm so thankful for you guys that have hung around because we now need to talk about how we can actually stop future school shootings, okay? The, before we even get into the suggestions, is there are a few reality checks that we need to go over from the beginning. Number one is that you simply will not be able to stop every school shooting. Okay. There's nothing you can do. If you implement everything I'm about to talk about, you won't stop evil entirely. It's impossible. Evil will find a way. And the second thing is, is that nothing that the anti-gun Democrats or leftists or even, you know, the squishy second amendment Republicans are suggesting right now will stop the overwhelming majority of school shootings because of what I've said over and over and over in this podcast is criminals don't abide by the law. So adding these new laws will not have the desired effect. It will not do what you think it will do. Okay. So let's go over the best possible solutions right now. The first thing that we need to do is focus on micro problems. Okay. These are the short-term things. Okay. Number one, install full video security and barricade systems in all K through 12 schools in America immediately. Immediately. I'm okay with this being done on the federal or on the state level. I don't care. So that's number one. Number two, where possible, retrofit every public K through 12 school in America with a single point of entry on their school buildings. Everyone that has any background in this, it says there should be one distinguishable point of entry in every single school that will help with this big time. And I'm okay with this being done on the federal or state levels as well. Let's talk about number three, begin the planning hiring process and training for full-time security officers to be placed at every school in America immediately. Okay. I'm okay with this being done on the federal or state levels. I'm okay with law enforcement agencies having a hand in this. I'm okay with private security agencies having a hand in this. Okay. People in the, but we do need to address this. There are people that are saying, you know, having armed guards at school, you know, will scare the kids too much, but these same people seemingly have no problem with armed guards at secure and security, you know, at airports or sports arenas or banks or federal buildings. So save me this idea that kid's going to be traumatized if he sees a gun on the way into his classroom, right? It's just not really going to work out there. And I, I need to take a little quick pause here because before anyone goes and says something stupid like, all this is too expensive, Kyle. Like, how could you possibly afford this and pull this off? Okay. Here's some math I want to do for you. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, the United States Congress approved $40 billion in foreign aid to Ukraine as they try to fight back the invasion of the Russians. Now, yes, I do acknowledge we can do two things at once, right? We can give money to the Ukrainians and do stuff here. I'm just showing you some simple math so that we can make this easy. Okay. That's $40 billion on top of the other billions we'd given them, but let's just focus on the 40 billion. If you add up all the K through 12 schools in America, that includes public, private, and optional schools. There are around 130,000 K through 12 schools in America right now. And I definitely rounded up everywhere I could. Okay. If you just took that $40 billion that the federal government just sent directly over to you know, the, one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. Okay. You know, we just pulled it directly out of our butts. If you took that 40 billion and divided it up evenly amongst every school in America, every K through 12 school. And I know dividing evenly doesn't make sense because some are bigger, some are smaller. Don't worry about it. $40 billion divided up evenly with all of those schools in America. That would give each school about $308,000 to get started on these new security initiatives on the, on the systems, you know, which are one-time installs and then, you know, you know, future stuff, you know, doing all the stuff with, you know, retrofitting the schools and, you know, paying people to kind of, you know, start being security for all these things. 
just to get started, there's $308,000. Are you telling me that doesn't make an impact? You're telling me these schools couldn't use that effectively? Okay. Now, in the state of Oklahoma, where I live, there was a big tornado on May 20th, 2013. There were 24 people killed. Seven of those were school children. Okay. The, tor- the tornado actually you know, took out a school building. I watched it live on air. It was one of the most horrific things. I was literally sitting there before I went to the gym, just bawling my eyes out, thinking about all the kids that had been killed. Right. And, you know, thank God there were only seven. You know, I say only seven, but there, it could have been the entire school wiped out. But uh, unfortunately, only, you know, only seven kids lost their lives, which was fortunate for the rest of them, obviously. But, we have automatically started moving in the state of Oklahoma to making sure there were tornado shelters inside the state. Now, it wasn't carried out perfectly, but we at least moved that direction. But for Oklahoma, in terms of security and all that, and I know I'm working with Governor Stitt's office to have him come on the show to talk about some different things. But here in Oklahoma, how about we use some of that casino money to, to work on the security programs for schools? How about that lottery money that was sold to us about 20 years ago that was going to fix all the things in education? Okay. Hell, how about we use some of that weed money, right? In the state of Oklahoma, we just couldn't live without medicinal weed. And now we have weed shops literally every 14 feet in this state. You're telling me we can't use some of that money for our kids? We can't use some of that money to protect our school systems, right? There is plenty of money to go around. I don't want these states, you know, coming out with their pockets out like, oh, there's nothing we can do. There's money in the federal and state governments to take care of this. We just need to be able to do it. And I know I'm kind of messing up my micro section here, but I do need to talk about this as well. I want to see parents in all over the United States at school board meetings, the next school board meeting, just as mad about school safety as I saw them with CRT in the classrooms and all this trans bull crap and all this LGBTQ nonsense and all these porn books in the libraries. You know, Mark Levin pointed this out when he was on Glenn Beck's program. That needs to be the next thing on the agenda. So those next videos we see of parents going viral, you know, from these school board meetings need to be because of that. We need to see that immediately. Now, let me get to my fourth and final, you know, micro approach to how we can solve these school shootings. Train students on what to do during school shootings. Okay. Which seems, you know, macabre and seems, you know, unbelievable, but we do fire drills. We do weather drills. So if you're in hurricane area or earthquake area or tornado area, we do drills for all those things. But very few schools have a drill in place for an active shooter situation. Train the students. That's something that you can implement next week before the kids are out for summer or something. I guess they're already out for summer. It's something that you can do immediately in August. Okay. But then after you get to the, through the micro stuff, we need to start focusing on the macro problems. Okay. And these are a much, much bigger and much harder to address. But number one, address the crisis of fatherless homes. Again, almost all these mass killers come from a home where the father is absent or crappy. And in every fatherless home, the children that are in those homes, uh, their uh, educational outcomes are lower. Their instances of criminality are through the roof. It's a bad, bad situation. And we need to have a bunch of, of ramifications for fathers that decide to leave their family. So focus on that macro problem. The second is address the mental health crisis. We obviously have a mental health crisis in this country and it has nothing to do with the fact that we don't have enough pills which is a third thing, and I'll talk about them together, I guess, is address the prescription drug crisis. Because here's the thing with these SSRIs that I talked about a little bit earlier. Almost all these people are on antidepressants, and we as a country give out more antidepressants than the rest of the world combined. The most affluent, rich country on the planet, the most affluent country in the history of the planet, really. We give out more SSRIs to these kids. Because 
you have a lazy, stupid teacher in elementary school that just can't handle, you know, uh, uh, this boy's, you know, uh, you know, his energy. And so we got to give him Ritalin or, Oh, this, this kid's just, you know, have a little bit of problem in school and, you know, maybe he's not making friends. So, so let's give them these, these SSRIs. Let's give these things to people that are changing their brain chemistry because we can't figure out another thing to do because you're not allowed to prescribe exercise to somebody. You're not allowed to prescribe, you know, healthy eating to somebody. You basically just give them a pill. We live in a country where you just get, you know, an orange bottle with a, a white top, and you use that until that stops working and then you get some other stuff and then you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding. There was a person in my life here recently, someone that I'm very, very close with that was having kind of a rough go at it, spent about five minutes talking to their doctor about it and the doctor gave them Zoloft. Something that changes the, the composition, the chemical composition of your brain based on, uh, and I'm five minutes is probably being too generous, based on a few minutes of understanding and the person requesting it and then all of a sudden, yeah, here, go ahead. We'll just take this in the short term, you know, for six to 12 months as if it's no big deal. Have you ever read, just go to Google, you know, if you're in a safe place where you can do this and just look up the side effects for Zoloft and tell me that that's just no big deal, right? And yet we're just feeding these to our kids like they're Skittles in addition to giving them Skittles, right? We need to address both of those issues. Another thing is that we need to address the end of shame because there is an uh, there's seemingly an end to shame in this culture. And I talk about shame quite a bit on the show because I think shame is one of the best motivators possible. Why do I not just sit around and, you know, watch television and not exercise and eat a bunch of crappy food because of the shame I would feel if I had to buy new clothes because I got too fat. The, the shame I would feel that if I tried to do something physically that I wouldn't be able to do that. That is a shameful thing. But also what about the shame for these officers that decided that their lives were more important than the kids that were being systematically murdered inside of the school. Where's all the shame for these guys? These cowards, which again, yeah, easy for me to say, I'm sitting here in my air conditioned you know, studio, fully safe and all that. But guess what? I didn't sign up for that job. They did. You signed up for the job to protect the local populace. You signed up to be a professional sheepdog. And while kids were being systematically murdered inside of a school, you were sitting outside arresting parents. Pushing them back saying, oh, we don't know. We're waiting on the key, right? The level of shame should be elevated in our society because it is a great, great motivator. And the last thing here on the macro issues is address societal cowardice. We saw that again with these officers that decide they didn't want to go inside. We see it with school administrators that don't want to address the scary kid in the corner because they don't want the kid to be signaled out. They want, you know, potentially this kid is LGBTQ. And if they do an after school conference with this person, they're going to be brought up as some sort of a bigot. And it's going to be talked about on Twitter and they might lose their job. There's this cowardice in our society that we're unwilling to do things because, you know, one thing that I didn't see that kind of gets rid of this, this whole narrative that, you know, we're, we're raising kids in this community. Think about all the parents that didn't have firearms that were willing to run into that school to try and get their kids to just figure it out. Once they got in there, maybe that's dumb. Maybe that's a silly thing to do, but I would like to think that I would be one of the parents that would be looking for my way to get in, to grab the nearest firearm, which for me is typically in a vehicle and to do what I need to do to get my kids back and to save the other kids as well. Right. But we have this societal cowardice that you're not allowed to say anything that makes somebody feel bad. You're not allowed to do anything that's going to make someone feel uncomfortable. And it leads to this unbelievable cowardice. Okay. And, and guys, while we focus on the short term micro issues and on some of the longer term macro issues, we also have to deal with the real issue, which is evil. Evil that comes from the brokenness in the world. 
a world that, that was broken by sin. Guys, we need to have more of Jesus. He is the only answer to evil. God gave his son to us so that there would be a payment. There, there would be a payment for the judgment that he put on humanity. And it was only by his blood that we can be saved from that judgment ourselves. Because Christians aren't out there performing mass murders. So is having more Christians in this country going to be a negative? Absolutely not. Because here's the thing, guys, is even if we put armed security at every school, evil would still take place. You know, even if we confiscate every single gun in existence, evil would still take place. It goes beyond the gun problem. Okay? This goes beyond a mental health crisis. This goes beyond security and warfare and all these different things. This is the product of the fall. This is a sin problem. If you're listening to this today and you have not accepted Christ, if you have not given your life over to him, if you have not put your trust in him dying for your sins, do that. Understand that. The, the Holy Spirit is calling you to that. Just accept it. Just do it. I know all my Calvinist friends are freaking out right now. Oh, you can't accept it. Uh, it's a free will or something. Just accept it. This is a big deal. This is how we solve all these issues. It's our first and only step in a lot of, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, really. But before we get out of here today, and again, I know we're going long, but this is all just very, very important. And I hope that this, you know, uh, this podcast stands up uh, over time as well. We need to talk about the Bible. We need to talk about the scripture that I talked about from the beginning. From the, a lot of people, you're hearing something like, but the Bible says to turn the other cheek. God, you know, Kyle, a lot of the stuff you're talking about has to do with self-defense and, you know, you know, carrying weapons and all that. And, you know, the Bible's against that. So anti-gun folks will quote this at Christians often. And I, I do find that interesting because how interesting is it that the same people that claim everything is a human right, like healthcare and housing and free education and free childcare, you know, these are all the same people that say you should not have the human right to be able to defend yourself. But I digress. You'll even hear this, you know, turn the other cheek language from Christians. Uh, and you'll hear this from Christians that aren't even sure who, who said it, right? Christians will quote this realizing or not realizing that this is what Jesus was talking about. And they certainly don't understand the context. So let's go back to it. This is what I read from the beginning, Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But we need to read this entire section, okay? So let's read Matthew 5, 38 through 41, okay? These are, they are all the words of Jesus. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay? Now let's talk about verse 38. Okay? When Jesus is referring to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he's quoting Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. They all talk about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now the original intent of these three passages was to limit the amount of punishment for a crime to that which would be equitable to the original crime. Okay? So you weren't to give a greater punishment or exact a greater vengeance than the original crime would have warranted. Okay? Now we need to get to verse 39, the turn the other cheek verse. I really like how gotquestions.org framed this, so I want to share this with you. Jesus' command to turn the other cheek in Matthew 5.39 has to do with our response to personal slights and offenses. Some situations may call for self-defense, but not retaliation in kind. The context of Jesus' command is his teaching against the idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in verse 38. Our self-defense is not a vengeful reaction to an offense. 
Okay. In fact, many offenses can simply be absorbed in forbearance and love. Okay. And I, there was a little bit of an addition from my reformation study Bible commentary, which gave us this little tidbit. The slap on the right cheek is a backhanded one and insult as well as injury. Okay. So just think about it. Like if you're right-handed, which most of us are, if you slap someone on their right cheek, you're doing that with the back of your right hand. So this just furthers the idea that Jesus was talking about this as it came to personal slights and personal offenses. Okay. And so, uh, you know, as recorded in Matthew five, you know, it's not advocating for us not to defend ourselves. Okay. That, that idea is silly. But we need to also look at other parts of the Bible as well, you know, the more words of Jesus. So as recorded in Luke 22, this is just before Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives and just before his uh, betrayal and arrest. So let's go to Luke 22, starting in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, this is Jesus. But now let the one who has the money bag take it and likewise his knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Okay. So guys, even though Jesus is using metaphor in this passage, basically any commentary will tell you this is all metaphor. It was common knowledge at this time that having a weapon was normal for protection and self-defense. That was common knowledge at the day that this was written. Okay. So we can surmise that Jesus would not have used this language if he was expressly against the use of a sword for self-defense or just uh, against self-defense in general. So later in that chapter that we see in Luke 22, they acknowledge that they do not have two or that they do have two swords amongst the disciples. Okay. They have two of them and pretty sure Jesus could have made them get rid of those swords. If he thought self-defense was wrong, you, you would assume that we would have heard something about that. Also, other places in the Bible where it shows that there's no real ban on self-defense. And there's a lot of them, but I just want to point to a few. So this is Jesus as recorded in Luke 11, verses 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, these are the words of Jesus. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, again, you have to ask yourself, in light of verse 21, where he talks about strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods being safe, why would Jesus use the language of self-defense in this parable if self-defense in and of itself was immoral? Because Jesus, I can't recall a time where he's teaching via a parable and is using sin in order to make his point, right? And then again, I also talk about the book of Nehemiah often in this podcast, going back to Nehemiah 4, verses 17 through 18. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So obviously we're talking about a self-defense situation. You see that all throughout the book of Nehemiah. And then you go to Exodus verses, uh, Exodus two, verses two and three. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So 
This is where we get the concept of castle doctrine. So also this is where we get a defense of personal property rights. You know, sorry, Karl Marx. And, you know, seems to be advocating for a meek and tempered response. So obviously someone breaks in the middle of the night and you strike them so that they die. They kind of had to come in, but if you do it in the middle of the day and you have the ability to get help and the ability to take care of that situation another way, we're encouraged to do that. So in total, the Bible gives many examples of the appropriateness of defense, uh, specifically self-defense, right? And it does seem to strike a hard line with appropriate levels of defense, right? Which takes us all back to the founders, okay? Because we we do have to kind of bring this around to the Second Amendment. We're, we're kind of winding towards a close here. There was a great piece that a member of my team, Matt, here at Undaunted Life, uh, shared with me. It's from David Barton in the Liberty University Law Review, and this is from October the tw- uh, October of 2014. I'll make sure this is in the show notes, but this was a great section here, so let me read from it. The Founding Fathers established American government with the primary purpose of securing to every individual the right to practice his or her inalienable rights. As the Declaration of Independence announced, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Three straightforward principles of American government are set forth in these words. One, there is a creator. Two. He gives certain inalienable rights to man. And three, government exists first and foremost to secure to every individual the exercise of his or her God-given rights. In addition to the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is, the right to own private property, listed in the Declaration, the Bill of Rights, listed other God-given rights such as freedom of religion, freedom of speech, justice in the court system, and many more, including the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, i.e., the biblical right of self-defense. Because this right was given by God, the Founding Fathers urged training for its possible use. So again, all that addresses people that say there's no way that we should be able to defend ourselves. That is a biblical doctrine. Self-defense is. There, this idea that the Imago Dei does not need to be protected, that is ridiculous, and that can be used with this argument on this issue, the abortion argument, and any other argument. This idea that we should not protect the image of God that is written on each individual person is obviously absurd. And this idea that the founders of this country had no idea what they were doing when they put down the Second Amendment right after the First Amendment is also ridiculous. But I do want to sum up my thoughts today by asking this very, very important question, because I think it may all hinge on this. How will taking my firearms away from me stop people from being murdered with firearms? How? To the law-abiding citizens like me that will never take part in a mass murder ever in our lives, how is taking away our ability to protect ourselves going to stop people from being murdered with firearms? As I talked about here now for the last, you know, close to 90 minutes, it's an absolute farce. It's ridiculous. And I hope that all this has been helpful for you guys. I'm so glad I was able to have the time to kind of put this together for you. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got some links for you today. I've got a link for anyone that's looking to book me for an event they have coming up. I've also got a link to episode 10 of this podcast. And then I've got a bunch of links there from all the stuff that I talked about in this podcast, everything from the timeline to different surveys to different stuff from the Wall Street Journal, I'll make sure all that is here for you so you can check it out for yourself. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, again, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life or go to undaunted.life backslash speaking. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band 
and August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.